Hello! Welcome to Free Will, Science, and Religion. I'm Chandler Klebs, and I'm here with George Ortega. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about, since we don't have a free will, and our choices are not up to us, then what is it up to? You know, um, how do we describe how things happen? Because there might be many different ways that a person can describe how things happen. Because... You know, when someone believes in free will, they just think, oh, well, I'm the source of everything I do. Whereas this opens a discussion of, well, what is making me do what I do? Exactly. Yep. And, and the problem, Chandler, is like, you know, we're going to try to attempt to answer this, but ultimately we're not going to fully succeed because I think what we're going to like rely on is causality. In other words, like this moment in the universe was completely caused by the previous, and the previous was called by, caused by the one before that. And so we both know that ultimately we get back to the Big Bang, and though, although science stops at that point, logic tells us that causality isn't just a scientific concept. Causality means that, well, something created the Big Bang, and something caused what created the Big Bang. So... Our problem, Chandler, in addressing this, this question of what is making what, are, what happens happens happen, um, our challenge is that like ultimately, this chain of cause and effect regresses back infinitely into the past, eternally into the past. So we never get to a point where actually you know, we can defi define or, or specify anything as like being the, the origin or the creator of anything that happens thereafter. Exactly, George, and this is what I often call the infinite regress, and a lot, of, a lot of people are lost on this point because, I mean, this this fries your brain because so many people's brains are just wired to think that there has to be a beginning of something. There has to be an ultimate beginning or origin, um, but as we were talking about, like the Big Bang, if, if that's defined as the start of the universe— um, then, well, like what came before that? What caused the Big Bang? You know, so yeah, like you mentioned, we have an infinite regression problem where we never get to a truly satisfying answer that satisfies everyone, um, you know. And I think some of us are more wired to where we will accept an infinite regress as being, you know, the best uh, explanation that we can come up with anyway. Whereas other people um, are more likely to suggest that there was a beginning uh, at some point. And, of course, I, I think there's problems with that, too. Um, but, yeah, we can definitely open up this discussion and think, you know, what does this all imply? What does this all mean? Because it seems that the, some of the biggest questions about existence... Um, and you know the nature of reality um this is this is sort of a it's kind of a scientific investigation but it's sort of like philosophical what in the sense that it's something people talk about and will continue to be disagreed upon because there is no final blow that leads everyone to the same conclusion about this right and, and like you know while i agree with you that i lean much more toward the infinite regress, that's not completely satisfying either in the sense that like, 
you know, for example, like our known universe is 13.7 billion years old. Well, what we're positing with an infinite um, universe and, you know, an infinite regress is like, for example, like a Google is what? One with 100 um, zeros. Well, multiply one Google by one Google by, you know, a trillion Googles by another trillion. I mean, do you see that like, you know, by this infinite regress, like this whole span of of um, 13.7 billion years, if we were going to like, let's say, um, use the analogy of grains of sand, it would be like less than a single grain of sand in all the grains of sand in, in, in you know, in, in the entire earth. That's how, that's how minute an amount of time, you know, the, even the entire universe has been here. So like, all right, but what we want to explore Chandler though is like, fine, we understand that that, that poses certain problems, whatever it's, it's, it almost kind of like transcends our ability to understand logically. But what we can understand logically is, you know, the, the universe, you know, beginning with the Big Bang, because we have these laws of nature. We had, in other words, like things do not just happen randomly or haphazardly. They happen according to various laws. And so like this, these laws, I think, can help us understand the nature of what is making us do what we do and what is making everything else, you know, happen the way it does. Yeah, and this is what's this is what's interesting, George, because one of the biggest misunderstandings is the idea of randomness. You know, because and even though we're determinists, um, I there I know some of our listeners are people who do believe that things happen for no reason at all, and the one thing I will have to say about that is that if there if things can happen for no reason at all then that right there, the problem with that is that it ends the exploration. It just ends the discussion. It ends any further investigation because at bottom they're just assuming, oh, it happened for no reason, so I'm not going to investigate it. I'm not going to talk about it. And then that leads to prolonged ignorance about the causality that exists. Right, Chandler. Yeah, I think rather than using the word reason, because like, for example, reason maybe connotes kind of like psychological reasons or logical reasons. I think we might want to better use the word cause. Some people are saying that something happens without it having been caused. And like, you know, that's, to me, that's a patently absurd assertion because that presupposes that before whatever happened happened, there was no universe. Because we understand that the universe... and everything that happens within the universe evolves in a causal, causal manner, you know, state by state by state. So anybody who says that something is uncaused, they're claiming that the universe didn't exist before that, that something happened. Exactly. That, that's why to say something that is uncaused is basically to... I mean, that, that has a, a burden of proof that cannot be met because you cannot prove that something has no cause. And yet we see endless examples of things being caused. Yeah, and the only, the only way to, you know, I think you can, like, if, if we can quote-unquote prove that the universe exists, at least that exists today, 
you know, or, or, or considered a priori evidence that requires no proof because it's so self-evident, then their whole argument evaporates. Because all we have to do is say, well, the universe existed before what you claim, you know, happened uncaused, happened. And so, like, you know, so we, we actually can prove causality, whereas, like, you know, the existence of the universe prior to the event that they're saying is uncaused actually does not allow them to come near, you know, even providing, you know, a, a, a reasonable argument for something being uncaused. Yeah, that's just it, is that for something to be uncaused, there has to be no matter at which can cause anything. There cannot be anything in existence. Exactly. So, the, the, you know, and so, like, what, what does that mean? That Basically, that means that there would have to be no universe. Because what is the universe? It's matter and the forces that act on it. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things, George, is, like, one of the reasons I tend to... I tend to ascribe, you know, like some type of consciousness to smaller life forms than most people do. And part of the reason for that is because I guess for me, it's more intuitive to think that there is, you know, some type of intelligence at the cellular level of why things happen and why mutations happen rather than assuming that things are truly random, that they're a-causal. I can't go with that. So I view things in terms of, of, ca of causal evolution of life. Well, and, Chandler, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, what I'm saying basically is that it makes more sense to assume that the tiniest of, of things that we know to exist are doing things perhaps intentionally um, rather than to assume that they are completely uncaused because the uncaused thing seems a lot less believable to me. Yeah, I agree with you. And all right, so like, but let's let's progress to that in a step-by-step -step manner. So like, in other words, like, first though, like we acknowledge, we're not even gonna consider anymore the, even the prospect of something being uncaused because it's absurd. It's just like, you know, completely absurd. So like, we start out with everything being caused. Okay, now, what, what, what we see in our world is this causality happens according, according to certain laws. It's like, it's ordered. It's ordered by the laws of nature. It's ordered by the four fundamental forces, you know, gravity, electromagnetism, the weak nuclear force, the, the strong nuclear force. And so like, basically, there's this order that pervades the, the the universe that kind of like that um causality acts on and so then you know that's where we are so in other words how do we describe this order how do we describe this organization of of um of the world i mean like some people would say would, would like to say well it's just ordered and like we're not going to ask beyond that right but that's kind of like the libertarian saying, well, we just have free will and we're not going to ask how we have it. We just have it. So like so what we're, you know, basically going for is a more, you know, precise, in-depth understanding of the nature of this order. Yeah, because we clearly see that things are ordered around us and that there's systems of how things work. And I actually don't know what the weak and strong nuclear forces are either. <laughs> Well, nobody does. I mean, you know, I mean, you read it in a physics book and, you know, like it's like, you know, basically like at the, at the nuclear level, 
there are, you know, there's, there are forces that act on these atoms and particles that aren't gravity and they aren't electromagnetism. So it's a different kind of like energy. Who knows what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, um, the fact that things work together in such a system, um, you know, how all of the plants and the animals and the bacteria all interact, um, it's, it's like, it, yeah, it, it just, it makes, there's, there's so many questions there to ask about, well, why is there gravity? Why are things this way and not another way? And, right. it, and that's why I want people to have those discussions because it's interesting. Right. And Chandler, so like, you know, just just like with a, a single celled organism, you know, a single celled organism is actually no different than an organism as complex as a human being, because neither of us have free will. What we do is not up to us. And what the single celled organism is, is, you know, does is not up to it. So then we're, we're left with, you know, something, you know, is making them do what they do and us do what we do. So. All right. So it has this order. Now, I think what I'm going to argue for next is like, you know, it's it's leading up to the point that you were making about like just, you know, basically like ascribing consciousness to to these single celled organisms, perhaps even to to particles is like there seems to have to be a general overall consciousness, a, a, a directing. In other words, like I don't think that things that the universe is just making things happen. Because again, when, when we're defining consciousness, or basically consciousness is defined as awareness. So I, it, it's, it's very difficult, it's impossible actually for me to conceive of a universe making things happen, making everything happen, and not being aware that it's making everything happen. Yeah, I get what you're saying there, because it seems, I mean, for you know, I don't think you can get the type of order we see from uh, from unintentionalness, if that makes sense. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, this, this is really powerful stuff because I think, um, I don't know, I, I think this, do, this has a lot to do with why um, in the U.S. the creationism and evolution debate has been so fierce is because there there seems to be conflicts and confusing terms used because i i think it's it's difficult because people are often trying to make the universe um unconscious in a sense they're trying to make um the evolution the biological evolution they're trying to make it all unconscious and then somehow humans are conscious and no other animal or plant is and I'm not sure how a, a lot of people have come to that reasoning because it makes no sense right and Chandler I think I think what their premises are I think many of these people are like you know traditional atheists or the militant atheists like Dawkins and all that base they I mean they understandably have a lot to protest against in terms of like the evil that has come about in terms, you know, through religion, the crusades, the, the inquisition and all, there's some horrible, horrible things that religion has done. So like, but what happens is that like, you know, any mention of a conscious universe to them seems too close to kind of like the acknowledgement that, oh my God, well, you know, 
what what we're describing in naturalistic terms is what these theists are describing in religious terms as God. So I think you know that's what's preventing them from understanding the nature of this naturalistic reality we we live in. Because the more we investigate it, the more we see it has you know certain things in common with with our religious conceptions of reality. Yeah, that's what that's what's interesting about it is I think that people are emotionally reacting to certain descriptions. Um, you know, when we talk about, a, a, you know, consciousness of the universe, and it, I guess it gets a little spooky because when people, when people talk about, you know, intention among even single-celled organisms, a lot of people get a little spooked out because we, we're so used to thinking like people are used to thinking of consciousness only on a human level and then i guess people get a little bit fearful when they start thinking about the implications of what we do know about the order and and how things work right now chandler with regard to intention just like we human beings actually like a puppet never intends anything right a computer never intends anything we, I mean, you know, colloquially, you know, we human beings may intend things, but that's just like a matter of speaking. Because we don't have a free will, we're actually not intending anything. We're actually manifesting the intention of the Big Bang, but even that creates a problem. Because, you know, if we're, if we're positing, you know, an infinite regress where we never reach a point of a beginning of everything, then, you know, in a certain sense, you know, there is no original intent. We never get to a point where we can say, yes, this is like, you know, at a certain point, the universe intended for something to happen because there's always a, a point, there's always like an infinite regress of causality before that intention, that quote unquote intention. Yeah, and see, when we talk about intention, I mean, it's always tied in with the idea of desire. You know, when we say that somebody well, see, when we say that somebody did something intentionally, that means there was a certain outcome they wanted and acted to achieve that outcome. But then you realize, well, these humans are made up of very smaller um, cells, smaller organisms, a lot of which are bacteria. And then you have to think, well, how does this intention map down at all the tiniest level of all this matter somehow combined? Exactly. So I think when we're, when we're um, describing intention, we have to actually use what we use when describing responsibility. You know, we humans are pragmatically responsible, you know, morally responsible, but we're not fundamentally morally responsible, right? So like, you know, a single-celled organism might have intention in, for example, moving toward light or toward heat or toward um, coolness, but it's not fundamental intentionality, right? You know, because there, there's like there's a chain of cause, causality that re regresses, you know, before that that single-celled organism was actually created. That's actually you know responsible for for making it intend. Exactly. There's always a cause behind the intention. There, there always has to be some reason. And it seems that for, 
for everything that we see, it seems to be a pleasure-pain thing. You know, it seems to be, you know, we it's beyond explanation, but it's some, it causes something pleasure to do one thing while it might cause pain or, or nothing at all to do something else. And so it seems that this intention seems to be tied up with the hedonic imperative. Yeah, and, and like so, like, and and even that, you know, you know, is not like, you know, basically we are hardwired, we are we are determined or caused to seek pleasure and avoid pain in, in the ways we do. You know, it's not even our, you know, seeking pleasure and avoid. It's like our being made to seek pleasure and avoid pain. But let's progress beyond, because like we've gotten to the point where we understand that you know that the universe has to be conscious because you, the universe can't, you know, basically um, make things happen without being aware of the things it makes happen. And now, so here, now let's, let's deal with this issue of intelligence because, you know, I think, all right, intelligence, I think, is, is something that we ascribe to the behavior of organisms. In other words, like if we're going to like create a machine, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the complexity of this invention and, and what goes into it that we define as, as intelligent. And like, if we're just going to, like, for example, like add one plus one, then that's a lower level of intelligence. But like, I think what we have to acknowledge is that because we human beings do not have a free will, the most advanced intelligence that we have that creates these, like, you know, the the um, hadron collider. I mean, I, I'm not actually sure what's the most sophisticated scientific discovery we have, but whatever it is, you know, it's not our intelligence because the causal chain behind that discovery regresses back to even before the uh, the Big Bang. So, like, how how would you relate that to to intelligence? How would how, what would that tell you in terms of like you know, the, the, the nature of the universe? Well, I would compare it to artificial intelligence in the sense that a computer chess program, for example, has been programmed to make the best possible moves according to the setup of the board, and that's why they can almost always beat humans who supposedly have real intelligence but really can't outperform computers. So here's the thing is, like... I, I, I think it's a little bit tricky um, when talking about intelligence because intelligence to me tends to mean, you know, it tends to mean doing the thing that makes sense according to some goal. So, you know, in chess it's about, you know, winning the game, what move will achieve that. Or in most of our lives it's about happiness, well, what will make us happy, what's the intelligent way, the efficient way to achieve that. So what happens is intelligence always goes back to desire which always goes back to pleasure <laughs> right and also like you know when you when you when you brought up the term um, artificial intelligence I think that that's a key to, to our understanding of this because you're right apparently like so it's not like we're not you know creating the the need for pleasure and avoidance of pain we're programmed for this but in terms of like for example we define a computer as having artificial intelligence right? Um, now here's the thing: we human beings, our intelligence is just as artificial as is the computer's, because just as the computer's intelligence is not really the computer's, it's whoever programmed it and all, and whoever created it. 
our intelligence isn't ours, it's whatever programmed and created us. Exactly. See, I think that there really isn't a distinction between artificial versus real intelligence. Because when you think about it, we're computers that are programmed in a different way. You know, just as now computers are, you know, are built by humans, the hardware, and programmed through software. And, but what happens with us is that, well, we didn't create ourselves any more than the computer did. You know, we, our, our parents uh, are the proximate cause of that, you know. Um, and so by our genetics and all, all our conditioning, every, every experience, everything we're taught, we end up programmed um, in a certain way. We have these desires where we are automatically inclined to do one thing more than another. Exactly. So like... You know, basically, so far, what we've determined is that because we don't have a free will, and this is, again, the importance of understanding um, the, um, the, how important it is to get this right. You know, this, this free will issue is not just practical. It's also, in, um, you know, very, very key in terms of understanding the fundamental nature of reality. So from, from our understanding that we don't have a free will, we come to the understanding that the universe is conscious and the universe is intelligent. And now we get to this holy grail of all questions, the one that what you've been raising about pleasure and pain. Because like, you know, apparently the universe, you know, has programmed us to seek pleasure, avoid pain, respond um, to reward and punishment. And that is like the most essential feature of our reality. So how, how do we describe that? Yeah, that's the tricky one, George, because this is basically the the top of it all. Like it always goes back to pleasure and pain. And so, you know, we refer to this as the hedonic imperative where whatever yeah, we see people acting this way all the time where what, they keep doing something because it makes them happy or they avoid doing something because it makes them sad, but it, you know, I think it's difficult for us to describe why something causes us pleasure or pain because it's like information that we don't actually have access to. Exactly. Now let, let's explore actually the, as, as far as we know, the origin of pleasure and pain. I mean, I did some research into this recently and it's hypothesized that the first organisms with a neurology sophisticated enough to be able to experience pleasure and pain uh, came about about 300 million years ago. They're, they're basically um, seen as the decapods, these, these marine creatures that have 10 legs, which include uh, crabs and lobsters. So like, you know, so now the, the key thing about this, think about this, like, because sometimes we, we ask ourselves, why is there evil in the world, right? Why would, you know, why should there be evil? Why can't everything be completely blissful, whatever? So like, now, if we understand that, like, you know, without pain or pleasure, without without pain, there could be no evil. Because, like, really, by definition, you know, I think by logical definition, um, evil is what creates pain. Because, like, if, you know, if, if, if no pain was created, how could we, you know, claim that anything is evil? So what we, what we come up with is that, like, before 300 million years ago, you know, at least, you know, 
on this planet, you know, who knows what happened, you know, to like, because there's got to be like an infinite number almost of, of like other civilizations throughout the universe. I mean, how could there not be? But at least on Earth, evil and goodness and pain and pleasure are only 300 million years old. Before that, you know, at least again, according to our best scientific knowledge to date, there was no pleasure and pain. Yeah, that's a that's a freaky thing to think about, and I mean, uh, somebody somebody might almost argue that it was it was better back then <laughs> before pain was possible. Right, and so like so here's the thing. So like, um, all right, when we're kind of like playing with with action figures, you know, these action figures really don't do anything. We are kind of like imparting to them. They're like, you know, their actions and stuff. It's really about us. So like, so the universe actually uses human beings and other organisms in that same way to kind of like manifest its will or, you know, whatever we want to, however we want to describe, you know, it's, you know, quote unquote intentionality. So then the question becomes, you know, fine, at least in terms of organisms, you know, like human beings and, and decapods, there was no pleasure and pain before 300 million years ago. But, I mean, can we, then the next question becomes, does this conscious intelligence that preceded it, you know, and that presumably goes back infinitely into this regress, you know, can we describe it as, as possessing a pleasure and pain? Because like, then the question becomes like, if it, if it doesn't, and if it didn't, then how, how, you know, how did suddenly pain and pleasure arise? I mean, maybe we can speculate that it has to have a certain kind of like um, neurological sophistication, but maybe not. Maybe, maybe like, you know, pain and pleasure are actually aspects of reality of the universe that don't require an organic mechanism. Well, what comes down to is, you know, anything that we see now, Anything that that exists now, like pleasure or pain or intelligence or whatever, well, since we have the it is infinite regress basically, then there has to be a cause for that. So it's kind of difficult to ever find a point at which there would be no pleasure and pain, and then suddenly there is. Because then you would have that would be like adding something that didn't exist and making it a pop out of nowhere. Yeah, let's explore that and present that in a bit more detail. If, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is that like before these decapods were able to experience pain and pleasure, there had to be the kind of like conception of pain and pleasure. In other words, the universe, the conscious, intelligent universe had to be aware of these, you know, qualities or experiences of pain and pleasure before they could, like, cause these organisms to develop the capacity to feel that way. Exactly. See, that's what's interesting, George, is that now I, I'm certainly no no expert in the in the, you know, how nerves and the biological functioning of how signals of pleasure and pain are sent throughout the body but here's the deal if you think about it that we're we're all a bunch of atoms you know we're we're a collection of these tiniest things well then if a group of atoms 
is experiencing some pleasure or pain, well, then how does that work unless those atoms themselves are feeling something? Absolutely. All right. So now you're, you know, with that, you're dealing with the specific. Let's move now to the general. So basically what we were just saying through, through just like, you know, what you presented, you know, that basically the concept of pleasure and pain had to exist before its manifestation in organisms was, was evolved. Then, then the question that, that we're, we're left with now is that, um, so we have a, a conscious, intelligent universe that, you know, I don't know if it's capable of feeling uh, pleasure and pain, but certainly, you know, pleasure and pain have to be a part of it. And um, the question that comes to my mind is that the question, this has a lot to do with, with theology, with God and all, is like, why, why would the universe, because you have to understand the universe is everything. So like when it creates pain, the universe is actually afflicting itself. It's creating pain within itself. Cause like, you know, the, the, the organisms that, that experience pain are not outside of the universe. So then the question becomes, why would the universe evolve something that is inherent or that, 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 that feels painful? What, what is the logic behind that? Yeah, that's a really good one because one could often compare it just like we could compare it to things that humans do that cause they cause themselves pain. And so what's causing them to cause themselves pain by doing things that they end up regretting later? Right, cuz you you think like you would think that like, for example if a human being was profoundly intelligent, I think we would like choose you know, quote unquote, choose to not experience any pain at all. So that so that the, the universe that, that evolved us that, you know, through its causality led to us and in our intelligence, you know, being, you know, how many times more intelligent that we are, you would think that it would like not choose to even conceive of pain. So and again, because like in terms of questions that we're sentient beings, you know, we human beings and that's our defining characteristic. Our, our most fundamental experience of reality is in relation to pleasure and pain, you know, because that's, you know, everything else is details. So like, you know, from our perspective, you know, the fundamental question and again, it's been asked in religion. It's not, you know, just a naturalistic question. Why? Why is there pain? Why is there pain? Why would the universe evolve pain? Why would the universe conceive of pain? It doesn't make sense. It's, it's kind of like almost as un unanswerable as the in infinite regress. Yeah. And see, here's what it comes down to is that to me, it suggests that there's some kind of struggle. There's some sort of conflict, just as each of us as humans and I imagine this would, this would apply to almost every life form out there, is we have conflicts of desires. You know, we, we want to do this, but we also want to do this, which can't be done at the same time as that. And so because there's different things that cause us pleasure and different things that cause us pain, I think what happens is that we end up going into a mathematical mode of pros and cons, weighing up the pleasure and pain of different um, quote-unquote possibilities, and sometimes we get the answer wrong. Oh, yeah. I mean, not just sometimes. I mean, you know, 
my main field for years was happiness. And, you know, what they found is human beings are terrible at predicting what's going to create greater happiness. I mean, like we go after like more money and more academic degrees and and these things that just don't create lasting happiness that, you know, so so I know we, we get this wrong a lot. Now, here's something else to consider. Um, we as human beings are hardwired to seek pleasure and avoid pain, and it would seem that moment by moment, day by day, month by month, year by year, you know, ultimately millennium by millennium, we have to be, I, I would think we, we, we have to be getting better at, at seeking um, pleasure and avoiding pain. You know, we no longer have slavery. We no longer mistreat women as, as much as we did before. We've eliminated child labor. We're kind of like, you know, many years ago, Almost everybody on the planet was poor. Now many of us are like, you know, even the poor among us are actually living better lives than the kings did, you know, in the 1400s. So like we're evolving, you know, from from more pain, it seems, to less pain. And so it would seem that, you know, at a certain point, whether it's like a, a thousand or 500,000 or a million years into the future, that at least we human beings could theoretically um exist without experiencing any pain at all. And then, you know, then then we could actually just then, you know, translate or, or um, ascribe the same progress to the universe. I mean, like if we're hardwired to seek pleasure and avoid pain and, and we're always moving toward pleasure and away from pain, then then I mean, is I mean, I actually have to ask this. Is this something that we can also ascribe to the universe in general, this this intelligent consciousness? Well, it sounds like what you're saying is that the universe um, will eventually evolve in such a way that it learns how to avoid pain better. Yes, yes. In other words, like so, like it's it's as if like you know the, these. Um, okay, yeah. Um, it's interesting you you bring up the 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 dual motivations and all because that's that probably you know plays a part in this. Like so, maybe it kind of like. Its intention, quote unquote, was to create pleasure, but the only way it could do it at the time of the decapods was to also create pain. And now the work of at least, you know, this part of the universe where Earth and, and you know, organisms is to kind of like find a way to to um, retain the pleasure and eliminate the pain. Yeah. Because isn't that kind of the struggle that we're all we're doing all the time? I mean, I know in the human world, that's what people are doing. They, you know, for example, they're trying to they're trying to get the good without the bad. You know, there's there's things we want to do, um, but then sometimes they they cause pain later. So take, for example, like. You know, uh, people do get pleasure out of, of say, alcohol or recreational drugs temporarily, for example. That, I think that's a good example. And so people become addicted to certain drugs because of the pleasure that that causes them. But then sometimes that also has things that cause them pain later on. And what's tricky is, is that everyone's in this struggle of how to get the pleasure and avoid the pain. Oh yeah, and you're right. And that that is the most fundamental. We're always doing that moment to moment. You know, that's what our, our entire lives are about. Um, 
All right. So now, I, you know, while you were saying that, another kind of like a question came to mind, um, and this has to do with experience. In other words, like um, in terms of understanding the nature of reality, you know, that we're a part of because we're not, you know, we're not separate from whatever controls us. You know, we're part of it, just like our hand is part of, you know, this like our hand is controlled by our brain, but it's part of this like human organism. So, I mean, a question that comes to mind and I mean, so you've got, we, you know, we we concluded that the universe is conscious, the universe is intelligent. Um, now, a question that comes to mind, and this has to do with the infinite regress and just like the concept of eternity is like, what do you think it must be like for this like universal consciousness? You know, if, if it has kind of like, just like we have a brain, if like this, this universe, this reality that we live in has one unified consciousness, what do you think it must be like to just like, you know, have always existed, you know, always existing and especially just like as one in other words like this consciousness cannot be two it's like for example you're a, a human being i'm a human being we interact with other human beings and so we have this kind of camaraderie whatever but like with the one singular universe i mean i would i would hope it wouldn't require that kind of like you know i hope it's you know there's there's more pleasure in unity than than in in relationship but but the question becomes, yeah, what do you think it's like for this this, you know, universal, you know, eternal, um, intelligent consciousness? That's hard to imagine, because I, I mean, like each of us have only like as the consciousness that we are have only been around for such a short time, you know, and like, you know, I've, I've, I've been around for 28 years and yet I hardly remember anything of my life. I mean, I have certain memories, but most of the things that we've experienced, we forget. And so I wonder if the if this universal consciousness that we're talking about would be the same way that it wouldn't remember everything. Um, it's a good question. Um, would it? Um, all right. But um, let me just address one thing before that, because it relates to it. Like, for example, right now we're doing a podcast and we might be spending an hour, an hour and a half, whatever. And then after that, we'll go on to something else. After that, we'll go on to something else. And we all do this. We go from activity to activity to activity. That is what, what fills our days. Now, for example, let's imagine this podcast, this, this last, especially this last one, which we're at, uh, let's see how we're at about 30, 42 minutes. Let's imagine this podcast, these 42 minutes represents, you know, the 13.7 billion year history of, of our universe, of, you know, since the Big Bang, right? So like this consciousness, this, this, you know, this universe, it seems to be going like creating worlds. It creates like, just like we created this, this um, podcast, this, this universal consciousness created this, this known universe, and then it'll create another one. And, and not just that, it's got like universes all over, um, but all right, present the, um, present the thought. So you, you raised the question that, uh, do, would this consciousness have a memory of the past? Like, would it, you know, remember what happened before the big bang? So how, how would you answer that? Well, I'm not sure that memory would be possible because it seems to me 
like I know with us that our memories are stored in our brain somehow. Um, and it seems it would be difficult if there was a time um, when the universe, if it was any, any slightly more disordered than we see now, would there have been a, a recording device, a device to record, you know, to write it down, to, to magnetically store it like a hard drive somehow? Like how, how would a, a memory storage and retrieval system even work? Well, I mean, if we're asking that question, we could also ask the, the question of, like, how could the universe be conscious without a brain? Or how could the universe be intelligence with, intelligent without neurons? So we, we kind of have to posit that there's kind of like a, you know, that this organic brain. And again, we, we, you know, because we don't have a free will, you know, we are actually, you know, we're manifesting the intelligence of the universe. So my, what I would... And actually, another question that this raises is like, fine, okay, the, the universe is conscious, the universe in, is intelligent. Now I think we're asking, is the universe knowledgeable? Because, uh, you know, because then the question would become, you know, does it know the future? Does it remember the past? You know, it, it seems to certainly be aware of, of, the, um, of the present. Um, I'm not, you know, I think... I, all right, because like now consider time, consider like the past, the present, and the future. You know, I think while in our individual human lives we see the past is no longer there and the future not ha having happened yet, I'm not sure that's the same thing for the universe. I mean, you know, like sometimes you hear people say that like that actually past, present, and future don't exist. There's just like a, a now. And I mean, I, I, I can't accept that in terms of human beings like to us, relative to us, I think the past and future certainly exist. But like in terms of knowledge, you know, to this intelligent conscious universe, it's conceivable that that, you know, part of this of its awareness, part of its consciousness is that it would like be able to be aware of itself, not just um, how it was in the past, but how it will be in the future. You know, in addition to how it is in the present, um, I, you know, again, this is something that I'm kind of like asserting. I'm not sure I have um, a sufficient enough argument for it, but I guess I guess the reason I would lean more toward it is because like we human beings, for example, can predict exactly where the sun is going to be, you know, a um, hundred years now in the sky and all. So I think if we have like pretty amazing predictive powers, you would think that uh, an intelligent consciousness, you know, vastly more intelligent than ours, would have similar kinds of like predictive and and memorizing ca capabilities. And once again, what's bizarre about it is that since well, the universe is everything that exists, that includes us. So anything we do, the universe is doing. So I guess we can't say that we have any more or less intelligence or memory or pleasure or pain than the universe because we are the universe so it gets a, it really blows your mind yeah and and, and that's and, and that's an interesting question because like for example um you know we are just like a teeny 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 part of the universe right so now it could be that there's pain on this planet earth but it could be like in a hundred billion um 
you know, civilizations around us and in a hundred billion galaxies around us, it could be there's there's no um, a pain or could, there could be like far more intelligence. You know, we, we, we you know, we can't really know the nature of the expansive universe based on on, on this like specific. It's kind of like it's kind of like being at one um, place on the Earth. And from that perspective, saying that that we can like um, we can understand or see, you know, what it's like everywhere on the earth, right? We have a very limited perspective. Yeah, um, that's here's a, a thought, George. People don't understand the massive smallness. <laughs> okay, here's what I'm going at is okay now. Us humans, from the, our viewpoint, you know, we look at an ant and it looks, oh, it's just tiny. It's just this tiny thing. But look how small we look in comparison to the whole planet. Look how small the planet looks in comparison to the whole galaxy. Or, I mean, just look at how infinitely small each of us are. And then all of a sudden you start to realize that... At first, you were thinking that the ant and the grasshopper and and all these th these tiny things were way small, and you were way big. But no, they're not much smaller than you. <laughs> oh, Chandler, yeah. I mean, now, all right. Now, now we're dealing with the kind of like the very you know essence of reality. You know, in terms of smallness, relative size, and all. Now, here's because as long as we're we're you know discussing the fundamental nature of reality. There's four infinities that we're aware of. Most of us are only aware of three of them. To most of us, this fourth one hasn't really, like, you know, come to their mind. So, like, for example, the first one is that it seems, at least logically, that the universe, you know, beyond this Big Bang, you know, known universe that we have, extends infinitely, you know, in every direction. You know, spatially, there's an infinity that goes out and out. And, you know, again, logic says, like, you know, how could it stop someplace? Just like, you know, and so like, all right, so we have this infinite outness, right? Now, in terms of time, we have this, you know, infinite regress into the past, that we can go back into the past and never, like, reach a point where every, everything began, because logic, you know, would then, you know, kind of like inform us, well, wait a minute, you know, there must have been something before that. All right, so that's the second infinity. The third infinity is that, like, we can posit that this universe, this reality will always continue to exist, because how could it not? How could, you know, what, what would replace it? I mean, whatever, we can't conceive of that. All right, now we come to the fourth um, infinity. And before I presented, you know, there is like, according to our science, you know, energy energy kind of like um acts in certain quanta there's a quanta of energy this is like where where the term quantum physics came from and it has something to do with planck's constant that i think says that like you know there's a limit to the size of a particle the size of like a you know a kind of like a a, um, a unit of energy okay and so like so basically like the, that's a that seems to be a limit imposed on on kind of like the movement of energy that we know of. But now, all right, apply the same logic we apply to the past and the future and to the in, infinite space going outward to our micro world. And Chandler, we have to conclude that 
within, for example, every particle of our universe, we can theoretically, logically continue to get smaller and smaller and smaller and never stop getting smaller. So what we ultimately arrive at is like we have an infinite number of infinitely regressing minute universes. Well, yeah, I get what you're saying because no one can point to something and say this is the biggest thing and then this is the smallest thing because there's always something bigger and there's always something smaller. We're dealing with infinity here. And I don't think that that most humans are capable of thinking this way at least yet. Maybe maybe more people will become in tune to this in the future, but this idea of infinity, that something that just never ends, it keeps going and going. And again, you know, the thing is like, you know, people are like are pretty, you know, these these first three infinities are very common, right? How often do you hear about this fourth infinity? So I think what what, what you and I might want to do, like maybe for an impersonal opinions podcast, you know, I think like Trick and Mitch and and, and Mike and these guys would be interested in exploring this concept, you know, and exploring it, you know, um, relative to our known physics. Yeah, and also, um, I know that Michael Wall still wants to do the theories of time thing, which kind of sounds a little related. You're right. We can actually weave that into it, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I'm mind blown. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, and I'm sure some of our listeners are lost just as I am because we, we've been talking about so much. But, I mean, to a certain extent, we have to say there are no truly satisfying answers to some of these questions we've been asking about pleasure and pain and these infinities and weird stuff. But isn't it interesting to talk about it? Absolutely, because like, you're, you're right. There are, you know, like with, with the infinite regress with certain things like there, it's not completely satisfactory, but who's to say that we couldn't ultimately come up with a, you know, completely satisfactory answer? I mean, like, you know, this might be a, a stage along that, that, um, that um, the development of, of that, you know, possible answer. I mean, so again, some things, you know, seem, you know, beyond, you know, the grasp of logic. They may not necessarily be. Well, just think about it, George, you know. Just just a few decades ago, who could have predicted that we would be recording uh, this podcast talking about this stuff? Nobody can predict that stuff. And so if there's anything I, I've learned is that the more I know, the more I know that I don't know, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. Just look around. Anybody who looks around in the room, at the computer, at a floor, at, at uh, fabrics, at all this stuff. This world is like, nobody understands this. I mean, like, you know, some scientists understand maybe polymers that go into plastics and all this stuff, but we're living in a world that pretty much nobody understands any of it, you know, on a day-to-day on -day level. Well, yeah, and, and you have to think now, there's the practical level. There's what we need to do to function in this society, and most of us know how to do that pretty well. We know that there's a way we function around other people. We know how to make things happen. I mean, we know how to flush the toilet by flipping a knob, even though we don't know how to, how all the details of how the toilet works and how the plumbing works. So most of us, just like most of us know how to use computers, but we don't know how to build them. 
Yeah, and actually, you know, our challenge for this point in the evolution of civilization is that our technology has exceeded our wisdom and our understanding of our world. So in other words, like, you know, this climate change thing, you know, if had we known back in the 1850s what we were doing or even back in the 1970s, you know, I think we might have like, you know, made different decisions. But but, you know, you know, we have this means of, of you know, of, of um, you know, of burning oil and of manufacturing all this stuff without sufficient um, realization, understanding of the consequences. Like so I think, yeah. And in terms of like the fundamental um, major challenge of our planet today is to shift our focus away from the material you know, because like for most of us, we have even much more than we need. I mean, think about it, you know, shifting from the material to our the development of our, us as individuals and us as a global society uh, in a way that we bec we act much more responsibly, much more wisely to ensure not just the happiness of this generation, but the, the happiness and, and actually existence of, of the generations to come. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm sort of optimistic after what you said, you know, about just look how much less pain that we're able to cause as opposed to the way things used to be. You know, so, there's a lot of harm still going on in the world, but some people are waking up and realizing, like you mentioned, you know, like people are realizing slavery is wrong. People are becoming more aware of how how racism and sexism and even speciesism people are now challenging these ancient things that have been going on so I, I do think we can say that the future will have less pain than it did in the past i think i tend to agree with it. it's kind of like our human race is going through like an adolescence you know when we were like 16 17 18 those can be really difficult years you know you know we're trying to figure stuff out and so like but yes eventually we we figure things out and I agree with you because, you know, as you said, because we're hardwired to see pleasure and avoid pain and because the trend, the historical trend for millennia has been, you know, to improve um, the quality of life and our civilization. I think that, you know, even though it's going to take, you know, a few kinds of quote unquote miracles to um, for our civilization to, you know, to respond to climate change and all and to ultimately move on. I, I agree with you. I, I'm optimistic. I think that, like you know, when when um, the time comes that that we actually have to do things, I, you know, I I guess I'm confident. I'm optimistic that 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 it won't be too late. That we will be able to kind of like do what needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's going to take a bunch of ordinary miracles, <laughs> miracles that happen all the time, um, as people are are naturally finding a way to seek pleasure and avoid pain. I think yep. I think it can happen. I think we're moving towards I think people have already generally been moving towards a more compassionate treatment of others anyway, but I think it will be accelerated by this understanding that nobody has a free will and that nobody deserves to suffer. Absolutely. Chandler would like 59 and 10 seconds. So maybe we should end this for like you know for an hour. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, you've been listening to Free Will, Science, and Religion with Chandler Klebs and George Ortega, and this episode probably blew your mind just as it did mine. We've talked about many 
um, different topics, and I hope you've enjoyed listening to this as much as we've enjoyed talking about it. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.